Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Hey there, I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council. And I'm Chris Sands at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Chris, I'm really excited to join you today on Canusa Street. You know, we we take a different issue each podcast and kind of unpack it. And it's a different issue that's important to the Canada-U.S. relationship and really maybe important as a model for the world. So, so this episode, we're going to talk about the busiest border crossing in the world and one of the most consequential. And maybe you could talk a little bit about it. Give us a little bit of the background. Well, Scotty, today we're going to talk about the Gordie Howe International Bridge, which connects my old hometown of Detroit, Michigan, with Windsor, Ontario. It's one of the busiest crossings between two countries anywhere in the world and is served today by a bridge, the Ambassador Bridge, that was built in 1927. The two governments after 9-11 decided that it was important to have additional capacity just to make sure this crossing was resilient and uh, and could be kept going as our trade expanded. And this set off a fight uh, where the current uh, bridge owner fought a new bridge that was in effect competition. This is one of the most fascinating stories uh, in Canada-U.S. relations in recent years, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation about it. And and why in the world did it get named uh, for Gordy Howe? Tell us a little bit about who Gordy Howe is, in case there in case there's somebody not from Detroit who doesn't happen to know the reference. One of the most interesting things about this bridge is that it's go- it was named by the governments after Gordy Howe. And for listeners to the podcast who are a bit younger, Gordy Howe was a legendary hockey player for the Detroit Red Wings. Born in Saskatchewan in 1928, about the same time the Ambassador Bridge was was welcoming its first trucks uh, crossing the between the two countries, he came to the Red Wings in 1946 in an era where even big stars often stayed with a team their entire career. When he retired in 1971, he had already led the Stan- the Red Wings to the Stanley Cup successfully four times and had won six Hart trophies as the NHL's most valuable player. But more than a successful hockey player, Gordie Howe was a great community leader, uh, reaching out to underprivileged communities, supporting youth sports, and really boosting Detroit spirits through some of the rough days of of rioting in the 1960s that uh, really had the town down on its luck. Uh, He's someone who's still remembered fondly for his uh, generosity of spirit and his decency, an old-fashioned gentleman, if you will. And I think it's the perfect person to name the bridge after, not after an abstraction like we have the Ambassador Bridge or between Buffalo and Fort Erie, the Peace Bridge, and not after a politician but after someone who really embodied the best of Canada-U.S. relations. And I don't think they could have picked a better uh, better hero to name this bridge after. Well, I can't wait to hear from our guests today about how how that came to be. That makes that makes a lot of sense. But I want to I want to get from our guests about who were in the mix, in the room at the time, uh, negotiating the project and also figuring out what to name it. I'd, I'd love to hear the backstory. So speaking of our guests, uh, we're very excited to have uh, two of the folks who know maybe more about this file than than anyone other than you, Chris. Maybe you could maybe you could say a little bit about our two guests today. Well, we've got two great guests, Scotty. Our first 
is the Honorable Lisa Raitt. Lisa Raitt was Minister of Transportation in the government of Stephen Harper at a crucial period when they were trying to build this new bridge. She saw right up close how uh, tough that fight was. She's also served as Deputy Leader of the Opposition and is currently the vice chair of the Global Investment Banking Unit at the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, CIBC. She's a global fellow with us at the Woodrow Wilson Center, and I know she's on the CABC advisory board with you, Scotty, so a friend to both of us. Thanks for coming, Lisa. That's exactly right. She is a rock star, and uh, we're fortunate to have a, an advisory board. We share some of the people in common on our both of our advisory boards, Chris, and it's it's one of the many reasons I love collaborating with you. So so let's also talk about uh, another guest, another all-star, as you say, guest uh, who knows uh, quite a lot about the history of this project. Well, our other guest is a longstanding friend of mine. Uh, Dr. Roy Norton, who was in grad school with me, finished first, I should note, is a career foreign service officer. And I first met him when he was serving at the Canadian Embassy in Washington as Minister of uh, Congressional and Public Affairs. He then went on to become Consul General uh, for Canada in Detroit. So right at the heart of this dispute and afterwards served as Consul General in Chicago. In many ways, Roy ended up being a salesman for this project, countering some of the disinformation that was bandied about, not only in Michigan, but in the states inside the U.S. that depend on that bridge for their economic livelihood, often completely unaware that this bridge between Detroit and Windsor is so important to their prosperity. In addition to being a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center, um, he is also a resident fellow at the Basili School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo and a lieutenant of the Royal Victorian Order. Quite an honor, Roy. I'd love to know more about it, but thank you so much for joining us here today. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation, so let's get right into it. Uh, so we're going to ask a couple of questions, and, and maybe I'll start with you, Lisa, and it's pretty, pretty obvious. Uh, question but it might not be might not be obvious to our listeners when, when you think about about building this bridge what what was the what was the hardest part of getting the deal done um, with Michigan and with the US and 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 also who came up with the idea of that um, fabulous name for Gordy Howe well starting with the last question uh, if you knew that the prime minister that I serve Stephen Harper is a a prolific author in terms of hockey history, you would not be surprised to know that there wasn't really any other choice than the Cordie Howe Bridge from the Prime Minister's perspective. But quick story, Mary Scott, the here's the deal. This was around the time when the UK had run a contest to name a new boat. And the boat that the name that got the most votes was Bodie McBoatface. So any of us in cabinet who had to name something, and I had a ferry that had to be named on the East Coast, everyone was pretty leery of putting it out to any kind of community or social enterprise to figure out what the name was. So when the boss, the prime minister said, we're going to name it Gordy Howe, um, 25 C's in Detroit, where we made a lot of sense to all of us and we weren't going to say no. So boss sounds like a great idea. Sounds fantastic. And you know what though, Scotty, the, as, as Roy would know, the, the Howe family was just so touched by the, the whole piece that we were naming it. And his, and their dad was alive at the time as well. So it was very, very meaningful. 
for us to to be able to have that naming. He couldn't attend in person, but he certainly had his family there. So back to what was the toughest part. This file has been so difficult and it actually ran its way through a number of transport ministers. It was John Baird who actually got the deal done at the end of the day, meaning he got the federal cabinet in Ottawa to agree to foot the whole bill. And that's what it came down to, right? Because blocks were being put up on the Michigan side by getting their own legislature to say not a single penny of Michigan dollars could go into the building of this bridge. And boy, we danced around that wire an awful lot in terms of trying to get it going. Uh, so Baird got us, uh, the federal cabinet, to agree to the payment. What I ended up getting was the great execution of it, meaning setting up the Crown Corporation and doing the nitty-gritty work to get it going. Easy stuff, right, Roy? Just, you know, little things that we had to do. But I have to tell you, I, I enjoyed the process. I found myself at a state-of-the-state um, speech in um, with uh, Governor Snyder at the time, just watching from from the very steep seats up there in the nosebleeds. And it was a surreal experience and I was really glad to get there. So we got the Crown Corporation up and running. The key for me was picking the right chair, Mark McQueen, who really picked up the ball and ran with it. I knew he'd be a force and he was a force, good or bad, he got done. And then the the last difficult part, to be honest, was squeezing the money out of the federal bureaucrats and making sure that Roy's laughing. I know he's laughing, but that was the most difficult part was making sure that I had as many tricks up my sleeve to assure the watchdogs of the public trust that uh, I could get the money out of them and that we'd get this thing underway. So that was, that was it. It was a, a lot about a, a lot, a lot of politicking happened in Canada just to make sure that once we, it was agreed to get the money that we could actually flow it out to the right organization. That's that's amazing. And, and you know, Roy Norton is not only a very distinguished uh, federal bureaucrat, as you say, but he also as a diplomat is is an incredible storyteller. Um, and I think a lot of diplomacy is telling stories, uh, to, is is creating narratives that resonate with people. So, Roy, tell us some stories, because, man, you lived and breathed this thing as as consul general um, and, and would love to hear some of kind of the war stories that you've got about this. Well, I continue to fear being sued, so I'm not sure how many stories I'll <laughs> tell. But the um, certainly the fact that the owners of the Ambassador Bridge, the monopolist owners of the Ambassador Bridge in terms of truck traffic, um, sued many times, dozens of times in uh, Michigan, in U.S. federal and in Canadian courts to try to either pre- prevent the project from proceeding or from their point of view, at least delay it. When you enjoy 60 to 70 million bucks a year worth of monopoly profits, um, if you can uh, maintain your monopoly for a few years, that's probably worthwhile. So they they lose all these suits, but they did succeed in inflating the cost of the project ultimately and and that's to the detriment i guess of the canadian taxpayer theoretically this will all be recouped over time from toll revenues and so uh, we're hopeful of that hey why is that theoretical and not actual well just because the costs um you know for for example when the us government uh, under president obama declined to pay for the united states customs plaza that added another $350 million to the project. We decided to absorb that cost, and the United States will get a free $350 million U.S. Customs Plaza. You know, what's $350 million between friends, though? You guys are going to get all the toll revenue. All right, keep going. Well, and ultimately, Michigan will get half of the toll revenue. It really is a great deal for uh, 
for Michigan, and it's a great deal for the United States. And, and since the Prime Minister declared this the number one infrastructure priority in Canada, it's a great deal for Canada. Everybody wins, but it's an anomaly in terms of Canada being willing to fund the cost, the entire cost up front of a cross-border project. The... Um, the referendum, uh, the, the plebiscite, uh, the voter proposition in 2012 November was uh, perhaps the most audacious uh, effort on the part of the owners of the Ambassador Bridge to stop the thing from happening. Uh, after Governor Snyder and Prime Minister Harper signed the agreement in June of 2012 to proceed with the project, uh, the Maroons, the owners of the bridge, uh, introduced um, uh, a public proposition whereby Michigan's constitution would be amended that November, uh, if the proposition succeeded, to prohibit the construction of any new projects between Michigan and Ontario, which is pretty bold when you think about it. Um, they spent 30 million bucks um, running television and radio ads, purveying more fiction than Random House and Penguin publishes in a year, um, attacking the project, and uh, ultimately they lost 60-40, but only 60-40, so it was a close-run thing. The governor campaigned, I visited and gave speeches across the state of Michigan, um, essentially clarifying to Michiganders who were being lied to in these advertisements uh, that Michigan was not going to have to pay a cent. Uh, the United States taxpayer wasn't going to have to pay a cent for uh, for the project. So anyway, that that prevailed in the end, and that that was the go-ahead ultimately for the uh, for the project to get underway. Uh, lawsuits continued, but um, those are now all behind us, we think, and the project is proceeding nicely. Ne never underestimate the litigiousness of the American public. I mean, it's a part of public policy. We can we can get into that anyway. Over to you, Chris. Oh, thanks very much. I want to I want to start a little bit with with Lisa. When you look back on this, was there a better option at the time for this crossing than having you know, Canada finance it to get it done? Could we have done this, uh, maybe a public-private partnership? When you were thinking about how to go about the bridge, what were the options you considered and, and how did you end up with this particular way of going forward? Well, at the end of the day, what it came down to was we wanted the certainty of actually getting it built because it had to do not only with aspects of trade and competition, this had a national security feature to it. And the reality is, is that having this link in the hands of the private sector, um, which could be closed by the private sector, did in fact enhance it. So from a national security point of view, it was very much in Canada's interest to ensure that we had that second link. And as you know, there are other links that go back and forth between the two, but they were not as amenable to the movement of, of um, goods or the movement of products that may be needed in the case of a national security matter. And remember, we were, this really got spurred on after 9-11 when the bridge was closed and all the things that happened around there. And the last part about this, and like Roy, I'm going to be really careful because I don't want to get sued. The, Canada also had a responsibility in terms of ensuring that the ambassador bridge was fit for purpose meaning that it wasn't going to fall into the river. And Transport Canada actually had the responsibility of bridge inspections. So there was an awareness that there were needed repairs for the Ambassador Bridge. 
that's the best way I'm going to put it. I'm not going to go any further than that. Um, but those are all documented. In fact, we ended up in court uh, about this as well, as Roy pointed out, in terms of, you know, how can on one side Transport Canada be the proponent for the building of the bridge, but at the same time also be the regulator in terms of whether or not the bridge was fit for fit for travel. And you did see some lanes were closed around that time in 2000 and I'm going to say 2014, 2015 as a result of re repairs that were needed. Um, so the national security, the trade transportation, this, the, uh, the certainty that we were going to have this link all played into a political decision, was a political decision made to fund it fully and just get on with it. But I got to tell you, going back for that extra $350 million, that was horrible. Um, and I bore the brunt of that when I got, I got the marks, uh, from cabinet on that one because the question was, when does, when does this stop? And I actually don't know the answer to that, Roy. I don't know whether or not Canada has, has had to agree to actually, uh, pay for the services at the, at the facility or if, uh, just the building of the facility was, was enough. Are we going to have to pay for the, for the yep. um, operations, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I think uh, I think that this this will be a good good fodder for a future podcast too, Chris, where we'll talk about the government of Canada buying big infrastructure uh, because it's in the national interest or the international, you know, for international. It's not just the Gordie Howe Bridge, uh, but there's a pipeline uh, that that came along after. So that that's a that's a little teaser. We'll we'll talk about pipelines maybe in a in a future podcast, but uh in terms of critical infrastructure, because bridges for sure are and, and pipelines are too. Well, I agree. Um, but I want to take this opportunity to ask Roy a question because I you talked about going around Michigan, but one of the things I thought that was remarkable um about the Gordie Howe project was how you reached into the United States. I mean, Michigan at least knew the bridge touched Michigan, but there were so many states whose livelihood, whose place in the auto industry and so forth was connected to Canada by this bridge. To what extent, you know, reflecting back, um, were you doing sort of a, a precursor of what we would later do on USMCA, which is talking to states in the interior about how important Canada was? Um, when you talk to governors, when you talk to state legislators on states that don't actually border Canada, what was their response when they found out how important this bridge was to them? Well, they were initially surprised, but uh, easily sold in the sense that the data, I mean, you can tell folks in Kentucky, in Ohio, in Tennessee, in, in uh, the Carolinas, in Florida, um, how much trade, how much stuff they sell to Canada um, goes up I-75 and crosses that bridge that's now 90 years old and was built to last 50 years. In other words, the source of some legitimate concern, um, how much of that was reliant on reliable transportation at the border. And when you did that, uh, governors and legislatures, as you mentioned, but certainly chambers of commerce, uh, certainly the auto industry and other big exporters in those states got it and got on board um, and you know joined coalitions, uh, multi-state coalitions in support of the project. And therefore it became a lot more than just Michigan. Michigan is vitally important in the equation, but when other states joined in, I think it highlighted to Washington for sure that this was something of a magnitude much greater than uh, than uh, the bilateral relationship between two, uh, one province and one state. 
And, and do you think that that's something that will have to be renewed every so often? I, I feel as though we, we, we have these moments where we realize how important Canada is to the U.S. and then we forget again. Um, is, is this something that's on Canada's shoulders now to constantly remind us how much we need you? Or uh, should we be doing a better job in the U.S. paying attention to such things? Well, it would be wonderful if you did a better job, but it's probably on our shoulders uh, to remind you because it's in our interests to do so, frankly. Uh, and it's not a hard sell. Um, uh, 34 states, I believe, still sell more to Canada than to any other uh, jurisdiction in the world. Uh, and so, uh, and, and these are not just data points. Obviously, these are companies and employees uh, who, um, who have a stake. Uh, and when they're reminded of the stake, and so, you know, we've got uh, 13 consulates across the United States and consuls general and staff who, who go and give, uh, uh, have meetings and give speeches and, and talk to the media and so on. Uh, and parliamentarians come down and, and do this. Um, uh, ministers, prime minister comes and does this. Uh, business people from Canada. Uh, it's a full court press all of the time. And frankly, it's going to have to continue to be. And, and uh, it's the um, price we pay, a pretty pleasurable price, a little bit harder right now due to COVID, uh, but a pleasurable price to go into the United States, reach deep and meet people and interact with them and, and find common cause with them uh, because, you know, you're so much like us. I, uh, I don't think it's a I think the Americans vacillate between denial and amnesia when it comes to understanding our relationship with our, our dear friends up north. I'm not sure it's a full court press all the time. I think when it is a full court press from Canada into the U.S., it tends to work. Gordy Howe Bridge is a great example of that. The renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, another great example and another topic probably for another podcast. But um, Chris, I know we're, we're reaching the end of our end of our time here with our esteemed, distinguished, wonderful guests. I wonder if if uh, before we turn to our uh, the last segment of our show here, I wonder if we want to give Lisa and Roy the opportunity for just a quick final word um, about about bridges or Canada, U.S. or any anything else they want to say here on Canusa Street. All right. I will. I'm all ears. Okay. Well, mine is, is very, um, it's very for my own benefit, which is I'm going to put it out in the universe. Whenever this gets opened, I want an invitation. I want to be there. This had a significant part of my life. I have a great affinity for the Windsor area from the Canadian side as a result. And I want to see this come to its fruition. And I, I want to be there when the ribbon is cut, but I won't be there as a politician, Scotty. I'll be there just as a, a member of the public who's very interested in it. So one of you guys will have to make sure that I get invited in the 20th. Well, well, never say never about your political career, but I'm uh, saying never. Yeah, definitely you're going to have to be invited. Uh, absolutely right. How about you, Roy? Final thoughts? We'll both be there. I'm, I'm actually on the international authority that oversees the, uh, the implementation of the agreement between Michigan and Canada. So uh, I'll, I'll probably legitimately be there, but I'll invite Lisa as my guest if need be. Um, the, uh, the, she's this a phenomenal is, plus one. I'm not going to lie. Well, and, and, uh, and invite you too, Scotty and Chris as well. Um, this is, um, uh, unique. Uh, this can't be a model as in all infrastructure improvements between the two countries can't rely on Canada, uh, absorbing the total cost. Uh, I, United, I love that idea myself, well, but okay. I'm sure, I'm sure you do. Um, but, but realistically, um, we're partners in this. Uh, your interests are as great as ours. We had to do it this way in this case to overcome 
the extraordinary opposition of a monopoly owner of a bridge who didn't want any competition and who was prepared to expend vast resources to try to ensure that we could never proceed with an agreement uh, between Michigan and Canada to build a new bridge. Uh, but uh, there are lots of bridges between Canada and the United States that will need renewal uh, along the way. And hopefully we'll be able to strike arrangements in every case whereby uh, the two countries, whether it's in public-private partnerships or whatever, each step up and bear their share of risk. Amen, brother. Well, th thank you so much, Lisa, Roy. This, is, uh, this has been great. And I hope that uh, future students of mine and, and elsewhere are paying attention to this. I think it's a master class in doing something for national security. It's not just about infrastructure and a bridge. It was advancing Canada's interests in, a, in an amazing way. And both of you took uh, historic roles. Maybe you'll end up on a quarter at some point or commemorative coins for your great work. But, but we truly, we really appreciate your time today and all the work you did to make this bridge come together. All right, so so we're going to transition now. Listening in on this conversation uh, with with uh, with Lisa and Roy has been our really good friend Derek Reedley, and he's he's somebody who is a Canadian that has lived and worked in the United States. He's back in Canada now, and and in his home province of of New Brunswick, there actually is a Canusa Street. Uh, so, so he's legit in that way. And, and he's a maritimer, just like Lisa Raitt is a maritimer. And, and, uh, Chris, I didn't mean to steal your thunder with the introduction. So, so let me let you formally introduce my good friend who you might be meeting for the first time today, but I hope he'll join us on, on our podcast to, to react and, and kind of, kind of chit chat with us about, uh, about what we're learning each, each time on Canada U.S. relations. Sure. Derek, welcome. And for our listeners, Derek's a media executive, personality, an entrepreneur, and he's run businesses in both Canada and the United States. Um, Derek, what's your take on Lisa and Roy's comments from earlier, and how do you see the bilateral relationship? God, look, not thrilled to be here, guys, and to listen in on such an interesting uh, topic. You know, being a Canadian who lives about an hour from the border, like most of, many of us uh, do. I've crossed frequently over the years at Callis and St. Stephen, and, and it received quite an infrastructure upgrade a few years ago. So I've seen hands-on how it can not only facilitate trade, but help to transform communities. The community of St. Stephen uh, in uh, New Brunswick, the border community, was choked off many a time uh, for locals. Uh, so taking the truck traffic directly out of the, uh, uh, the main thoroughfare has really, really transformed that uh, community. But I got to say that uh, when I think about this project, uh, the full home run is on the name. Uh, I come from the media and communications industry. And I'm telling you, I am uh, with a particular focus on branding. And I always, always, always look for things that fit as perfectly as possible. And, and, and most often, things don't fit the brands don't fit, but Gordy Howe, oh my Lord, you know, Saskatchewan, Detroit, we had a Canadian making money and income, owning homes, crossing back and forth. He's almost been like a precursor to uh, uh, modern Canadians because with technology and uh, 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 the gig economy, uh, we're seeing so much more increased uh, uh, movement across that border. So Gordy Howe is not just 
ideal because of the location of the bridge. Literally, he was somebody who was a forerunner to uh, modern Canadians, the way he uh, made his money and the way he was uh, an icon and a friend for so many of us. You know, it's so cliche. If you want to please Canadians, just have a hockey reference. And Derek, you just confirmed that, you know, uh, you and I met at, at a place called Fox Harbor, which is... Um, owned by Ron Joyce, who was Tim Horton's founder. So if you want to have a successful bridge and get the taxpayers of Canada to finance it, or if you want to have a great donut shop, um, name it after an iconic hockey player, and you got a good, you got a good opportunity for that. There's no question. In fact, I met Gordy Howe once, and it was at Fort, uh, Fox Harbor. Frank McKenna uh, brought him in. And, you know, uh, Frank does a great job of bringing people together, whether it's, whether it's former President Clinton, whether it's uh, Tony Blair, whether it's Mark Messier or Dan Marino. All of these people are around, and uh, uh, they're surrounded by some real economic leaders in, in the United States and in uh, Canada. Uh, and, you know, it's a pretty hoity-toity room. I'm the last guy to get an invitation and, and, the, and the poorest guy in, in the room. But when you're there, it's, it's pretty intimidating. Uh, but, you know, there people with last names like, you know, uh, uh, Harper and Irving and, and such. They're very, very uh, comfortable with all sorts of people. But when Gordy Howe walked into that room, everybody was a child again. I mean, <laughs> Derek, I think it's one of the things that, that struck me about all of this. So Gordy Howe stopped playing hockey for Detroit in 1971. He still stayed active. I think they retired his number in 72. But uh, so my my boyhood included some of his playing years, but not very many. And while he's household name in so many parts of Canada, you know, I think naming the bridge after him was a reminder to a lot of a lot of Americans, particularly a lot of Detroiters who were Red Wings fans, just how important his career had been. And you talk about an era, you know, even when Gretzky uh, ended up changing teams, but for so long, he, he just played for the Red Wings. It was a different era where you did stay with a team for most of your career. And uh, it, it, there's a lot about his legacy that I think there is to admire, but putting his name on the bridge uh, I think it's a fantastic way of, of reminding Americans of his role in Detroit and, and in hockey generally. No question. Here's, you know, here's another reason I think it, it, it fits. Uh, Gordy Howe was one of the toughest guys uh, on ice. You know, he was not only a goal scorer, he was an enforcer and he had no problem looking after himself. But as tough as he was on the ice, he was known as a gentleman off the ice, whether it was to uh, teammates, whether it was to competitors, or just, you know, fans like me who wanted a picture uh, and hung off every uh, word they could. And, you know, on a molecular level, I think that naming things uh, uh, in a friendly manner takes some of the, the, uh, 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 the mystery and some of the drama around cross-border travel. And I'm not talking about you know, the trade, I'm talking about everyday Canadians who cross the border. I know, I, I lived in California for six years, crossed the border at least twice a month uh, for those six years. And, uh, you know, the most frightened I ever am is when I'm standing to talk to uh, a border official, whether it's Canadian or uh, American. So taking some of the sting out of that, making it a, a, a little bit more friendlier proposition, I think that, that that works on a whole other level. But talking about the sting, I just wanted to pick up on this because it came up earlier. I, 
How are Canadians feeling about, uh, you know, the, the having to pay for the bridge in, in such a significant degree? I remember when Donald Trump was president, we were talking about building a wall on the southern border and making the Mexicans pay for it. And the irony is we built a bridge on the northern border and you ended up paying for it. Does the Gordie Howe name take some of that away? Or do you think people in Canada are still feeling as if you uh, went a bit above and beyond on that one? Well, uh, I honestly think that uh, reality plays a big deal here. Uh, you know, there is a big difference in perception in Canada and the United States, and uh, it's not going in our favor. So we have to try harder. If that means we have to foot the bill a little bit more to grease the skids and get some stuff done, well, then I think Canadians are, uh, it's in our own best interest to get our heads around this. This is going to be funded by uh, travelers uh, across the, uh, the the bridge. And uh, to me, that is just uh, uh, the way infrastructure projects are increasingly uh, funded. A lot of Canadians don't like it, but uh, you know what they're going to, they would like a lot less are continued uh, delays and uh, higher prices due to sluggish cross-border travel. So, but, you know, I, I, I know Minister Rate will tell you that's, that's a great, um, uh, that's a great perspective. You know, if you're a politician, that's hard to sell at the, at the grassroots, uh, level that it really is in your best interest when you're taking a dollar out of your, uh, wallet. But uh, from a macro perspective, it makes great sense for Canadians. All right. Well, listen, I just want to say how great it is to have you on the podcast, Derek. Um, and I, I always like collaborating with my friend Chris Sands. We're so grateful to Lisa Raitt and Roy Norton for joining us. Uh, and I would say everybody keep, keep your eyes out for news on the Gordie Howe bridge as construction nears completion. And we can all get together and start crossing the border back and forth and, and engaging in even more commerce than we already do. And also seeing our loved ones and visiting our summer houses on each side of the border and just, just, just getting back to business, uh, with each other. That's going to be really great. So thank you, everybody. We look forward to welcoming you back to Canusa Street really soon. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.